Welcome to Santa Fe College. My name is Vilma Fuentes, and this is our podcast, Developing Global Citizens. Today, I'm joined by uh, one of our designated faculty at Santa Fe, um, Dr. Javier San Pedro, who is a professor of Spanish and Latin American humanities. So, Dr. San Pedro, uh, thank you for joining us. We're so happy you could be here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, I want to begin with uh, what brought you here, and by here I mean Santa Fe, Florida, the United States. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think you were born in and spent uh, an early part of your life in Cuba. Yes. So could you tell me about your experiences there? Uh, what, what are your memories of Cuba? Of course. And like many other Cubans, I love talking about what I'm from. And um, I've answered this question so many times. And I feel that with time, the question f fights to stay the same, but it doesn't. Doesn't have to it stay doesn't. the same. <laughs> Keep changing it. Add flowers. The, the I mean, the answer. The, the answer stays. Um, it changes, but it, it's the same at the same time. Now, I I grew up in Havana, not very far from the southernmost city in Florida, <laughs> and I um, grew up under the tension, the restrictions, and under the surveillance of a very restrictive government and uh, society, but I didn't realize at the time that it was. As a matter of fact, I, was, I had a pretty content childhood. Good. I was not an, un, an unhappy child for the most part because I was totally, um, well, ignoring the, the, the bad part and trusting that my parents and my family uh, made the right and the best decisions for me. Therefore, there's nothing to be worried about. And the fact that I grew up in a household where my dad was very much in symphony and very much in uh, agreement with um, the communist socialist uh, transformation of the country, the way it was happening in the late 70s when I was born. Mm -hmm. So... Um, to me, if uh, um, the, the earliest memories I have were mostly about, or, or I, I guess the, the memories were about less about the hardship uh, of growing up and the scarcity and the necessities and this kind of stuff. It was more about really being the child of divorced parents like many Cubans because it's a very common thing. Uh, it, was, it was, at least, it still is a very common thing. Your parents are divorced, married several times. <laughs> so, so I'm curious when uh, American kids might think about their childhood, they might think about, I don't know, I was playing soccer, I was swimming, I was playing video games. Give me some of the impressions you have. What did you do as a child? Oh what did God. you play? I played everything that had, that had nothing to do with toys. <laughs> okay. Because... I simply, and I don't say this uh, so sad anymore, because I see some advantages in it now that I have my own children. I didn't have many toys, yeah. any kind of toy. Therefore, I, it's not because my family was so poor or anything. It's because to obtain a toy back in the 70s and early 80s in Cuba was uh, to go undergo a, a very, you know, sad process where uh, as, a parent, as a parent, you have to feel almost humiliated to give your child this designated, specifically quantified, classified toy according to your child's age because that's what the 
allocation of your, you know, um, uh, quota of the toy for the year is for that children. It's really my 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 mother, especially she she fought this way of equally distribution of you know communist society so bad that I basically didn't have any toys because they were all imported from Russia too, you know, <laughs> and then. Um, I made my own toys. A lot of them were board games. And most of the time I spent time really in the street chasing after cats, uh, dogs, or stray, any stray animal, uh, drinking water from taps. Like, so basically, you know, now I see children playing, uh, b saying that they're bored and they have so much. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, that makes a one, one could argue, uh, I'm almost envious, almost in that um, here, I think, in the United States, oftentimes as parents, we struggle to tell our kids, get out of the house, go play outside, use your imagination without electronics. Uh, I'm imagining uh, that maybe you started developing your creativity and imagination at an early age with no toys, yes? I would say that precisely that lacking of choice is what triggered my imagination creativity and later on in my adult life a sense of um, uh, ad adaptation to survival you mm -hmm. know survival mode which is what you develop while you live in the island of Cuba is a constant uh, adaptation uh, towards the scarcity the uh, the needing to make up things work with the little options that you have. Combining old elements to form new ones, that's the logic, great structure behind the survival modes in Cuba. So recycling of components is essential. Mm -hmm. And if you have one component that I lack, then we trade and then I make my own prog per project full and you maybe later on will be able to do the same. So yes, in that type of upbringing, whatever you want to say about this totalitarian oppressive regime that I grew up with, it does it did form some sense of um, self-preservation in me that triggered you know a type of creativity that is less and less abundant in this world that is the one that comes out of necessity, you know, uh, not the one that comes out of the pressure of being you know richer, wealthier, you know, uh, but rather the one that comes from I have nothing to eat tonight or right. tomorrow night. So. I know that this, of course, Cuba is not is <laughs> at all, you know, in the worst situation. And there's hunger and real need in the world way, way beyond Cuban. Uh, but th this is the case that I, I have lived and I have felt in person the longest, the one that I can speak with more authority and the one that I um, perhaps uh, can probably teach, you know, better about uh, as a result of. So I had... I'm the daughter of a political, a Cuban political refugee, and uh, it, you know, in when I was growing up, it was easier for me to imagine traveling to I don't know Mongolia, I don't know so halfway around the world, than it was for me to imagine traveling from Miami to Havana. Yet, thanks to uh, Santa Fe, specifically the Santa Fe Foundation, I was able very briefly for a few days uh, to travel to Havana in 2017, and uh, one of I have lots of impressions of that, but perhaps one of the best ones is about Cubans' commitment to the arts. It's everywhere. It's palpable. It's in the music. It's in dance. It's in uh, visual arts. And so, um, and I, 
I, I, I'm just curious, were you exposed to the arts at an early age? Did you, did you dance? Did you play an instrument? Did you sing? Tell me yes. about that. Oh my God. <clears throat> very, very exposed to the arts from a very young age, but not only as a passive consumer, also as a, uh, someone who could argue something about art. So something, someone who could criticize a little bit and probably create, um, an informed opinion about what he uh, listening or seeing. I um, uh, was the kid who had to endure my mom's decision to go to a guitar, classic guitar recital <gasps> for two hours straight at age seven, you know, eight, when I was like, no, really? The Do I need to sit there? Torture. <laughs> you can imagine. But this was like world class. Sure. classic guitar and I was like yeah enduring it but at the same time <laughs> I kind of knew there was something good about it now I am like the number one fan of uh, guitar as an instrument and flamenco music as a, as a genre um, I was also taken to the theater at a very young age and this is something that I really really miss about my childhood I don't have puppets and muppets anymore around me and my kids don't have them and going, uh, growing up in, in Havana and going to Teatro Guignol or Teatro de la Calle or, the, or, or basically an, Im an improvised, you know, improvised little street. thing in the corner of your neighborhood where fantasy became some, you know, uh, uh, that, that little moment, not TV, you know, rather something more in person with voices, with performance, with music. That, uh, you know, is something that... Um, truly awoken in me a special sensitivity towards most of the expressions that are not just plain for everyday language that are uh, is the language of the arts and i'm still very much passionate about it and this is what i try to bring to my students in the classroom today so to be clear when you're talking about uh your visits to the theater as a child you're not talking about amc theater you're talking about live theater, theatrical performances, and were they musical? Was it acting? Playhouses, it uh, puppets, um, a lot of music. Not Broadway style, not so huge. Mm -hmm. Small street uh, theater, and not so big, so, uh, not so small sometimes, uh, but real life venues with, you know, dark, then the curtains open, and then the magic begins. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of that. So my brain as a child, uh, uh, and I don't think that this is, uh, you know, you can blame or uh, uh, give credit really to the Cuban government for having allowed this to happen. Come on, it's the artists themselves. It's, it's the, the people. It's the people right. who worked on those theaters for years and who put so much dedication and passion in what they did, what allowed me to feel this way. So something has to be very clear is that I'm not praising the so-called Cuban revolution or the so-called Cuban governments here. Uh, you know, this is, has not to do with politics or the way that countries are governed. This is the, about the resilience of Cuban people beyond all of those restrictions. So um, I, I must admit, I've never heard about, uh, what did you call it, El Teatro de la Calle, the street theater, or these improvised street things, The um, maybe because I haven't studied this, but I... I do know that in apartheid South Africa, they had something similar. They had these improvised street theaters and street performances, 
But as I understand it, during the apartheid period, this was also used as a space of resistance that, you know, the people would just totally impromptu go out on the street and have a little play or a comedy show or something. But it was incredibly critical of the apartheid regime. Is this what was taking place in Cuba? Was that oh, even very allowed? Much. Very much. Just like at a very young age, see, with puppets and Muppets, uh, when I was in my elementary school years, I, I was not so much aware of it, but the content and the quality increased and became more complex with the years. And as as a young college student in Cuba, when I was 17 years old, I was exposed to ways of constant contestation mm -hmm. to the reality that I was living from the arts mm -hmm. in a space that was not free. It was very censored, but yet had the determination of making a difference, and that was the theater. So yes, monologues, uh, remakes of classics like Shakespeare, but within the Cuban perspective, within the Cuban time period, the same 90s that were really the, con the uh, you know, the, uh, one of the harshest countries in the history of my country, which what we euphemistically call the special period. What was special about it is that, you know, the restriction and the control over the the uh, uh, you know the government over their own people became a lot harder. So, so hold on. So let's contextualize for people who may not be aware. So, 1990s, the special period in Cuba. Why? So, Soviet Union collapsed in 19 December 1991. Communism had fallen in most of the world, um, but not in Cuba. And Cuba lost its primary patron, which was the Soviet Union. And so, I, as I understand it, many of the supplies, imports, etc., that it had been receiving up until that point ceased. And so, Cubans had to fend for themselves. Yes, essentially, became, that's the special period. It became a period of roughly a decade, uh, uh, because I would I would say that it, 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 you know, in some ways it still hasn't ended, and we refer to uh, the current economic crisis as the new special period, because um, in essence it demonstrated or it showed, perhaps, where the biggest problems of this socialist program were, the social, the special. Period. It was a period of, of uh, increased awareness of the Cuban people about the uh, the structure, the decision makings are behind all of this illusion that had been the communist revolution up until 1989. Mm -hmm. You know, it was basically the true and strongest first revealing of that veil of illusion that it, for so many decades a lot of Cubans had followed as the obvious choice after Batista times, after 1940s uh, capitalist, uncontrolled capitalism growth in Cuba happened. So um, is the moment of great dissolution, you know, one of the many that Cuban as people, as nations have had the 1990s. Therefore, 1994, the Balsera crisis, the Cuban drafter crisis, which uh, is, a, is a big landmark in the recent history of Cuba, where a record number of people hop on anything that could float to escape the island. And then the United States had to open the Guantanamo military base mm -hmm. as a provision, provisionary or temporary facility to mm -hmm. harbor them. So this is the time period when I am uh, borderline crossing into high school and uh, even though all of this insanity is happening, 
arts is still going, thriving. Mm-hmm. And there's a concert of my favorite troubadour <laughs> happening in 1994 as the rafters are leaving the island. Mm-hmm. So I'm here singing to my favorite, you know, folk singer crying because I know that half of my brothers are living. It's a very, very powerful moment in my in the history of my early youth that it just I cannot forget and it'll always always be there because um, I'm seeing the same the same moments happening again you know mm-hmm. just last year with a big a spontaneous uprise yeah. and the precisely uh, an exactly an exact year from today Cuban people in a very spontaneous on her way decided to take over the cities and 11J became all of a sudden a new meaning and a, a new a new moment of awaken not just for Cubans for everyone outside of Cuba that things aren't the best way the the things are not well things can be different and we don't need anyone else outside of Cuba to tell us how to do that we can do it ourselves but we need to change the minds of the people who are in, ch- in power right now. So it is how I found a way to express myself through the language of art that was freer, that was uncensored, that was more me. And even though I don't c- consider myself an artist necessarily, I've been around artists and art enough myself that I, you know, have, have uh, I guess, put a lot of my own hopes and a lot of my... Um, a lot of my own uh, trust in that this is a language that produces common 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 grounds that produces common places ways to people to learn how to tolerate and coexist with each other and that makes me a professor of humanities at Santa Fe College okay which we definitely <laughs> want to talk about so as a segue to yes. that and because I don't know I I can't I can visualize, but I don't know what songs you were hearing on the streets of Havana during your childhood. But I do know what you were referencing last year. The The song is called Patria y Vida, uh, Homeland and Life. And it's really turning on its head, right? What Fidel Castro and the communist regime used to say, which was... Um, Patria o muerte, which is either, you know, homeland or death, because, of course, they were fighting against the U.S., the Yankee imperialist power. And the idea was everybody had to go out and die for their country. Yes. Yes. And precisely this new generation of hip hop artists and uh, raperos, how, how we call them in Cuba, are taking the microphone in very improvised settings. Uh, in very improvised neighborhoods, creating a whole festival of hip hop, and they're unfortunately extremely repressed. But is the, is one of the vehicles of repression, I mean, of expression, that Cubans have found uh, in the recent years. One of the uh, this song is so powerful that it made it all the way to the Grammys, and now it, it's uh, in the Latin Grammys the number one song being heard. One of the singers of the song is still in jail in Cuba for having expressed his inconformity with the system. Well, I think we should all resist and go out and download the song on your Apple playlist if you haven't already. Patria y Vida, uh, Homeland and Life. So the refrain in this song basically says, se acabó, like it's over. 60 years of this, dude, where it's over. Mm -hmm. Eh, 
so for you in particular, I presume it ended when you left and you came to Florida. So were you, or maybe you didn't come to Florida. Did you leave as a balsero? How, how did you leave Cuba? Great question. And obviously it's the question that I've been asked so many times. How did you get here? Because <laughs> you're Cuban and this is Florida. So did you most, swim across? Most no. people, <laughs> yeah, most people want to hear no. the, you know, uh, an adventure story. Mm -hmm. And I don't take it personal anymore. You know, I, I used to. It's like, no, what do you think? We're all Balseros? No, we're not. Uh, I, ca I came legally in, on an airplane, actually, not from Cuba directly, because I never had the plan to live in the United States. Mm -hmm. This was not really my number, my, my obvious choice. Growing up in Cuba, hearing constantly that this is your enemy, something filters through. Yeah. And at some point, I was not motivated in my early youth to come to the United States, I always thought that Europe was a better destination mm -hmm. for fulfilling my academic you know, dreams and whatnot, maybe find love. Spain probably was mm -hmm. the number one target like many Latin Americans. And um, many of my friends at the time actually made it to Spain and lived mm -hmm. and became European citizens be before I ever uh, uh, could dream of leaving the island. So that was basically my where I was pointing at. So you went to Spain? And I didn't uh, go to Spain. <laughs> no. No. It was com more and more, more and more complicated and unexpected than that. And life brought me to this uh, international students party where there was an American girl dancing at my own pace. And <laughs> when we realized that our dancing was great together, um, we started a relationship and actually some of my family was living in Europe at the time and I decided to make the bold move to leave everything behind for one year and tell this girl that I had barely met would you do the same and guess what she did it <laughs> so this uh, relationship with the United States started with a love story and I moved to England of all places to start this love story and after a while uh, after marrying this girl over there in Europe I came here to Europe uh, to Florida to live with her and she was a student at the University of Florida so that brings me to Gainesville so love love, love made you leave Cuba follow this American girl to London <laughs> but and obviously everyone else is and it's like come on <laughs> are you kidding me who are you cheating uh, we all say that that's what happened love love is what happened right <laughs> But you were desperate to leave, right? You were desperate to leave. So how come love is what happened? Well, let me tell you, I wasn't desperate to leave. I knew that there was more for me, you know, uh, in life waiting, you know, to happen. And I have so much eagerness and so many dreams. And I knew that in order to fulfill so many of them, I had to travel and I had to be outside of the island. But leaving my home country forever, saying no to all of those corners for... 25 years I became who I was that was never the plan that was never the plan to leave behind my mornings my routines my neighbors my plants my my coffee the amount of sugar that I put in a coffee yeah. you know all these things were never the plan all these things were just part of the price that we had to pay you know as citizens uh, of another country that is not your homeland. And um, when I left, I felt very happy because I had hope for the future. 
I have better hope than my parents did for their own future. My mom is a retired person. She's 80 years old. Is she still in Havana? And she, lives, she lives between Havana and Europe with the rest of my family. She goes back and forth. That's an amazing advantage to someone, to anyone that lives in Cuba. Yep. But she doesn't want to live with their children. She wants to live in her own apartment, sure. in her space. <laughs> the one that she fought for so hard and cleaned and maintained for so long. She wants to have her retirement age at 80 to be decent. And she doesn't want to have to fight for food so hard. So she chooses to be in a little room with her husband inside of her daughter's apartment in Europe not because she loves Europe, not because she hates Cuba, it's because there's no other choice, you know, to people like us. So it was love what brought me to the United States, and it's still love what is keeping me here, you know. You need to understand that there's, uh, I am an American citizen now for my 10th year now. Yay. And um, I, 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 I feel an amount of freedom, you know, that I perhaps could only imagine of naming so during my life in Cuba. However, you know, I've grown old enough to understand that freedom is nothing like like the, the concept or the dictionary says. It's much more complicated than that. So I'm not idealizing my life right now either. I don't think I live in the most perfect world. This perfect, the world is huge of contradictions and problems as well. You know, but at least now I can freely and openly study my problems, vocalize in them, channel them, ventilate them, find support, and it's all just normal and not illegal and not persecuted. You know, um, so I don't know if this answers. This it does. I, I mean, so uh, and I really thank you for being this um, forthright and open, sharing yeah. your experiences and your thoughts. That's not the way. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, do you have opportunities to discuss this with your students? Or I don't know if you ever go and tell them, here's my life story. Yeah. But uh, maybe a better question is, how do you use these experiences in the classroom or at Santa Fe in general um, to, to teach your students about Latin America or about the world? I think it's a, it's a great question because I put so much time in thinking precisely how not to transmit just the pain and the sorrow, but the positive outcome of all of this experience. And, you know, to my students who barely can pronounce the name of my country. <laughs> Please tell me they can say <laughs> Cuba. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> Cuba is actually very accepted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but sometimes something else comes like an R at the end. You know. <laughs> strange, things strange. But no, I mean, what I tried to bring is uh, obviously a little bit of, of a combination of, of, of things that have brought me in front of them, make them more visible. First of all, that I, I am a difficult person to define culturally because I've been almost as much in my adult life in, in part of a Cuban culture that I have been part of an American culture. And I have lived not only in Florida, but I live in Pennsylvania as well. And one of the country, cities that I know the most is Washington, D.C., actually, this, mm -hmm. the capital of this country. And I know because I've studied and taught about American history and American literature and American arts and Native Americans' history, which is one of my passions. 
my reason most common passion tremendously. So when I speak about in my humanities classes, American cultural identity, I bring forth an experience of my own life that at least tries to inspire a different perspective on my students and what they have in front of them. You know, being an American or being a Cuban is not a simple thing to define. It has never been, you know, because we are in constant transformation of who we are. And at the same time, we are in constant preservation of who we are. That means that our identity is both solid in place and in constant transformation. I see myself as a Cuban American, but that is to say that I am neither Cuban nor American. I am something, something quite in the middle. And that would be where the hyphen is located. There's a very great book about Cubanness by a Cuban American scholar called uh, Life on the Hyphen. His name is Gustavo Perez Firmat. And it's precise, precisely what I'm talking about. Life on the hyphen means that you are perhaps in some some sort of transcultural state. And this uh, phrase is a obviously a very famous phrase coined by Cuban anthropologist Gust uh, um, Fernando Ortiz in the 1940s. He said that perhaps the way that we should see Cuban identity is a, as a result of mixing the African and the European, but not in a de degenerative way or a deconstructive way, but where both are um, where both are promoting equally towards the generation of a new type of culture, and he called it transculturation. I feel a little bit like I am transcultured person now. Neither one or the other. Yet, of course, certain traits in me uh, are, are pushing to stay the same. I cannot cook beans the way Americans do. Yeah, I will never do. <laughs> Good. You know, uh, but you know that uh, that I guarantee you will not change. But you know, modulating my tone of voice so that other people can hear better what I'm saying and don't get the wrong uh, the idea that perhaps I'm being mad at them. You know, is one way that I guess me and many Cubans could probably adapt to, you know, modulate. So <laughs> so you live in the hyphen, but I'm thinking maybe you really are, you know, un americano. Uh, I know when I was a little girl and I would travel to Latin America and people would, would ask me where I'm from and I would say, yo soy americana, uh, depending on where you were, people would get deeply offended and say, no. You are not Americana. Nosotros somos Americanos, right? We are all American. You are un estadounidense, mm -hmm. right? You are from the United States. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but now it, I, I realized, oh, oh, and my first semester in college, actually, I took a, a one credit colloquium, a small study that was about the Americas and what it meant to be an American in the Americas. And so now... I don't live in the hyphen. I don't think my children live in the hyphen, but uh, I'd like to think that we are truly American and that represents all facets of what it means on this hemisphere. Maybe you and your children and your loved one are the same. Uh, am I going to consider myself just an American in the future? Maybe. Um, I don't deny anything. Anything can go in any direction. In regards to your, the word choice, when you define yourself, 
because I think it's it's all about uh, where you feel you belong, right? Um, and you know, it's not a secret that Cuban and many other cultural uh, communities in this country have a way of creating their own countries inside of this one. Mm-hmm. We call it Little China, Little Cuba, Little, little Haiti, <laughs> Little Havana, right? Um, so um, I've never been a myself a, a great f- fan of recreating my country outside. I've always been more of someone who um, finds the Cuban traits within Americanness. Dr. San Pedro, thank you so much for sharing your um, thoughts and experiences with us. And thank you for all you do uh, every semester, every week, for helping our students become um, more global citizens. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.